0: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Classical Ideas, this is Greg Soden. Throughout the last several years of teaching religious studies, I've collaborated with a few close friends on how best to teach the content, texts, practices, and traditions of the world's religions. Each year, my course morphed into something new. I developed my own strategies for engaging with primary sources like the Gita or the Tao Te Ching and felt my skills sharpen in supporting young intellectuals to ask fantastic questions and engage with people whose backgrounds and life experiences differed from their own. I comb news and journalistic sites and magazines looking for mentions of Confucius, the Buddha, the Greeks, and indigenous thinkers, and think about how to incorporate these modern articles into my classroom. I developed my little version of my own world in a religious studies classroom in a typical American high school. I always wondered how the same type of course was being taught in different regions of the country. What are other teachers doing? How would they teach this title or handle that trip or interpret this passage? How would they help young people make sense of it all? Are they doing it better than me? In the end of July 2018, an article was published on the Harvard Gazette called, quote, Religious Education Through New Eyes. The article was about a teacher near Chicago teaching religious studies. The teacher, John Camardella, is my guest on the show today. This episode can best be described as two teachers talking teaching methods and the how-tos of teaching about religion in high school. John Camardella teaches religion and social studies at Prospect High School. He's an Illinois native and is a fantastic example of a veteran in teaching, being a lifelong learner. I very much enjoyed this chat with John, and so I hope you will enjoy this conversation with John Camardella. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I am here today with my guest, John Camardella, who is a fellow colleague in the world of high school religious studies. John, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
1: Great to be with you here today, Greg.
0: Can you just start off by introducing yourself a little bit to the audience so they can have a context for where you are in the world?
1: Sure. My name is John Camardella. Um, I'm going into my 16th year uh, in education. I teach at Prospect High School. Um, which is in Mount Prospect, Illinois, just northwest of Chicago, uh, in high school district 214.
0: Wonderful. And so how long have you been teaching religious studies for high school students?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I started getting an idea back in 2006 um, that I, I felt that we were missing a core component uh, in our social studies education. And so what I started to do is I went back to school and did a master's degree trying to figure out, and I did my research about why high school students needed a religious studies and cultural studies course. And through those those couple of years of figuring it out, uh, I realized that it was happening in certain pockets, but there was a a massive gap in the education we were providing in public schools regarding religion and and culture. So it took me actually three years, uh, but I ended up writing the course um, with the help of some fellow colleagues, uh, the help of some uh, religious scholars at local uh, and national universities, and I've been teaching it since 2009.
0: So when you started to notice this gap in the field in your schools, Were you teaching, like, uh, world history courses for, like, 10th graders and things like that?
1: Yeah, so I was uh, predominantly teaching human geography and U.S. history. Um, I also taught an American studies course with a very good friend and colleague, and we did that for nine years where we interdisciplinary approach to to history and English— and many times we touched on a lot of cultural and religious ideas without ever being able to go in depth. Uh, and that's where I started to notice that we needed something to better serve our students as they they enter this, you know, multicultural and multi-religious world.
0: Excellent. So um, take me through sort of like the creation of the first incarnations of the class. Like how did you go about putting together a course that was like brand new for your district?
1: Yeah. So what I, what I did was I just started looking up college textbooks. (laughs) And so I, uh, I went and I found a few and there was, there was one I, I came across, um, back when I was in high school, this, this course had been taught, um, briefly at, at prospect where I was at. Um, but also it was taught by a man named Tim Phillips at Hersey high school where I went. Um, Tim's still an administrator in our district. Um, and he's always been a mentor to me. And so the book we used in his course was called Ways to the Center, um, by Brink and Carmody. And so I went back to that and I sort of started there. I, uh, I reread it and I started structuring it for a high school class. Um, and that was the one that eventually got approved, um, in 2009.
0: How similar is the current version of the class to the one that you made back in
1: 2009? Um, it's not very. Okay. <laughs> and What I mean by that is we, we do go in a, a similar trajectory. We still sort of follow the traditions-based approach, meaning that we do dedicate time um, to a religious tradition um, over about three weeks. But the way in which uh, we go about teaching it and the outcomes we're, we're looking for have completely changed.
0: How many religions do you think that you how how many do you think you cover in a normal school year?
1: Uh, well, the nice part about the way I do it is is all I do now, and all I've done for the past few years is I teach this course five times a day every day, hmm. and and so it's now a senior elective, and it's forty weeks, so we have two separate semesters. So first semester, uh, I do a unit on religion in America. I often joke with people that within the first week. We get into the Establishment Clause, and I actually teach my students how to get me fired. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a really fun, you know, day where we sort of dive into you know the 16 words of the Establishment Clause, and then we break it down into free exercise and no establishment. Uh, and so we lay the ground rules right away, and I think it's one of the most important parts of citizenship is understanding um, the separation there, because it's one of the greatest misconceptions I think that that our country has to deal with. Um, but after about a three week, um, dive into the history of religion in America, we look at some Supreme court cases. We start with, uh, John Winthrop and Roger Williams and go all the way up through the Virginia statute of religious freedom and Thomas Jefferson. Um, then we go into Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Taoism, Confucianism, and Shintoism. That's first semester. And then second semester, um, we get into Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and then we do a unit on atheism, agnosticism, and secular humanism uh, as we try and uphold the, the Supreme Court case of Abington v. Schemp, where, where people, I often remind people, you know, that we can't elevate one faith over another, but we also can't elevate belief over non belief or vice versa. So it's, it's critical that, that my students and the parents in our community understand that.
0: Do you, just a random side question from that, do you struggle with teaching about Sikhism in first semester since you haven't uh, covered Islam
1: yet? Um, no, not much. And, uh, you know, the, the two religions being, you know, separate, the idea that Sikhism is a little bit younger, you know, it's only about 500 years old, Yeah, uh, is that students understand it. We do it really geographically in a sense that we leave the, sort of the Abrahamic traditions together. Um, and we take religions that many of which started in Asia and India uh, and keep those in first semester. So we do look at it sort of geographically, uh, and that's sort of how I've uh, expanded out.
0: So has that order of units that you just laid out, has that varied at all over the last several years, or has that order been like sort of like a foundation, like rock foundation for you?
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty much been the foundation. You know, two years ago, uh, I didn't have a very in-depth unit on Sikhism. And so that has been in the curriculum now for the last two years. And I'm very proud of it because, you know, Sikhism, according to most census bureaus and, and all the polls that are taken, is about the fifth largest religion in the world. Um, and I think it's it's very important that our students understand the complexities within the tradition, um, but also then how it's, it's influencing both life American around
0: hold on a second John yeah okay sorry about that a little audio glitch Um, are there any uh, religions that you don't have included in the curriculum that you have as like a goal for including in the future
1: I think the the big one that that People, well, I should put it this way, the, the, the question that most people talk about is, you know, the, the traditions of Yoruba. You know, I think a lot of the, the African um, diaspora type religions, um, which have high, high influence. I've just never been trained in them. Um, and also the indigenous religions of, say, for example, the Native Americans. Um, those are the two, the indigenous uh, traditions, I do understand, is, is lacking. Um, but, like I said, again, in order to do justice and make me feel really comfortable with with the information, I would need to go back to school before I would feel comfortable teaching those.
0: So, what does like a typical unit do for work? Like, so take me through like a unit that um you know people might might recognize, like take me through like a Hinduism unit or like a Christianity unit.
1: Sure, sure. I think the the biggest thing this would be a great time to to talk about. Um, really the work that we've been doing over the last year. Um, so the, the work with the religious literacy project at Harvard divinity school and Dr. Moore, it's really changed the trajectory of my course quite substantially. Uh, and, and we now, and I have adopted what's known as a cultural studies method for studying religion. And so we, we really do start with the first few days of giving students the language So we understand access points to understanding the tradition. So what we want to always try and convey to the students is that whether it's Hinduism, Christianity or any religion that we're talking about, that religions don't necessarily speak. You know, not all religions have texts, you know, not all religions (laughs) have rituals that are equal across time and space. And so what we do is, is we give language, we give some basic doctrinal ethical implications, but at no point do we ever claim them as exclusive. And so we, we do spend, I would say, two to three days at the beginning of each unit helping student under, students understand where each tradition began, maybe some of the names, the places, um, if there are core tenets, we try and bring that up. But then we immediately jump into how these religions are internally diverse, how these religions are embedded in cultures and how these religions change over time. And you know how the dynamic nature of each religion not only has shown itself in different countries, but also here in America. And so we do a lot of current um, events. We do talk a lot about the case studies that are provided by Harvard Divinity School and the, the RLP. And our students really engage with the different manifestations of religion like we said, across time and place,
0: what's like the what's the reading like in class? So the reading
1: comes from mostly primary and secondary sources. Um, we do look at a few primary texts. Um, we do occasionally uh, engage with scriptural texts, but I always um, stop just short of any scriptural interpretation. We don't do that. You know what we do when it comes to scripture, um, whether it's you know, an ancient scripture or more modern day scripture is we look at how those scriptures play out in different communities. And so um, we're not interpreting texts. We're not asking, obviously, students to do that. But that's the the most important part is that we're looking at what are some primary sources. But most importantly, is how have people interpreted those sources as they live out their lives.
0: Do the students like seem to show any inclination that they want to be interpretive whenever they're reading texts? Sure.
1: And that's the beauty of the course is that they have the free exercise to do and approach the, you know, the the content however they'd like. You know, they can approach it from a devotional standpoint. That's wonderful, and I support that. Um, you know, for me, the concept of them understanding what religious studies is, you know, versus a, a theological or devotional approach. Um, My students understand that and we return to it quite a bit. You know, when students want to do that for their own, you know, interpretation, that's great. It's but they're very aware that that's not something that, that I do.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I always do is whenever there's a student who has some ideas that they're wrestling with, I always say to them, I have like these open ended extra credit opportunities mm-hmm. that I give where I just say, I want you to write down everything that is going through your mind right now and I want you to send it to me and we can have a private conversation about it. And then I want you to share it with people at home and I want you to talk to them about what you're thinking. And then if you, they have anything they would like to add to the thoughts and ideas, we can all have this, like, three-person dialogue going on between home, the student, and the teacher, and it has led to some really amazing conversations, and it's just something that people will um, intrinsically follow. So, what are some of your assessments like?
1: So, the assessments, really, over the last year, um, we've I've done away with all Scantrons. I've done away with all quizzes. I've done away with all tests. Um, and I, I have found that through the support of the Religious Literacy Project, we've now moved to a case study based assessment. And I would recommend them to anybody who's in this field. And so what this looks like and what this currently looks like is for each of the major religions, uh, Harvard has authored four case studies for each religion. And they center on the topics of gender, uh, violence and peace life as a minority, and climate change. And so the fascinating part, and our students absolutely love this, is at the end of each unit, they get to choose the topic they're most most interested in. So we're dealing with the religion, but as it's embedded in culture, dealing with different topics. And so the assessment goes like this, is they'll get a two-page authored case study from the Religious Literacy Project, and they get to choose one of the four. They'll spend an entire day interacting with the primary and secondary sources that the Divinity School provides, that the authors at the Religious Literacy Project provide. And the nice part is at my high school, we have a one-to-one iPad ratio. And so they'll have the packet of the case study to read, but then they're on their iPads engaging with the links. So they're watching interviews, they're watching videos, you know, and it's, it's a really, really authentic way. Of engaging with this material then the second day so it's a two-day assessment the second day they come in and i give them six questions five to six questions uh, from each case study so whatever case study they chose there are different set of questions their job then is to choose two of those six and author an essay in 50 minutes answering those questions and so it's it's open note You know, they have access to all the information. And so what we've done is we've given students a choice in their assessment. And what I've noticed is the response has been overwhelming that whether you're a student who's looking to go to an Ivy League school or, you know, you're dealing with special ed students, you know, everyone can access these case studies at their own level. Um, And I'm just I'm really proud that that in this learner centered community. We're trying to give every student, no matter where they're at in their religious studies career, um, they have the ability to interact, engage, and learn from these really complex situations. How do you kind of
0: build up to that assessment over this over a semester?
1: So each, well, at the end of each unit, we'll we'll do that assessment. Oh, cool. And so yeah, so each unit, each religion has their own set of case studies. Oh, great. Um, and the religious literacy project is in the process of continually authoring. And publishing more.
0: So, what and would so, like uh, what would like a final look like? So, say they've done like four or five of those throughout the semester. Like, mm-hmm. what would a what would a final first semester look like?
1: Well, then you'll get a kick out of this. And so, what we did with their support is um, we put together a writing your own case study final exam. Oh, and sweet. so rather than having a you know a one hundred or one hundred and fifty question multiple choice exam you know, where we're asking them, you know, what date was so-and-so born, (laughs) you know, stuff that we we don't need that right now. That's not the most important information. We are giving students the ability to write. And so, for example, some of the ones that our students completed last May, you know, we had one case study about cultural appropriation um, and Gucci, you know, Gucci (laughs) as a clothing line had all of a sudden offered, you know, a turban as part of their you know, line of clothing, mm-hmm. you know, and whether or not we had a we had a student who researched um, how a, a devout Muslim astronaut would pray towards Mecca when they were flying over Mecca 15, 16 times a day yeah. in the space station, <laughs> you know, just really complex thing. Um, or another one did it on, on Mormon athletes who are coming out of high school and instead of going on their mission have to come up you know, make a decision about whether they, you know, train for the Olympics, whether they move on to, you know, the NBA, or whether or not they, you know, go on these missions. So really, really complex, important, that have nothing to do with scantrons.
0: That is fantastic. I uh, am pretty pleased that I never gave really any exams either in my courses. It's all, I just tried to think about totally different ways of doing things. Um, so I want to talk to you about texts now. So like, what are some of your favorite religious scriptural texts to teach?
1: Yeah, I always, you know, um, I go back and forth with regards to what I think students would like, um, what I think is important. And so what I've always said is, is each unit, whether or not we realize this is that the texts and the parts of the texts that I choose um, whether or not that's teetering on endorsement, right. You know, yeah. so making sure that, that I'm, I'm not just finding the ones that I love the most and then just dumping them on the students before I realize they're just sort of sitting in my living room. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, I do look at some of the most important texts and how they bear out in different cultures across time. Uh, and so we do, you know, obviously we'll, we'll engage with, for example, in Hinduism, the Gita, you know, and we'll we'll look at ways that it manifested itself in the life of Gandhi, mm-hmm. you know, in his, what we would say is his situated perspective. Um, and we'll look at ways, you know, different um, scriptures in both the Hebrew Bible as as well as the Christian Bible, how some of those lines have, have influenced people across space and time. You know, we do a really unique um, approach to, for example, in the Judaism unit of whether or not you should fast on Yom Kippur. And this idea of looking at it for, through the works of uh, Elie Wiesel in his book, Night, and what his experience was in the in the concentration camp when those high holidays hit. We then look at other ways that, that rabbis, both during, say, for example, in 1848, there was a cholera epidemic and how the words of the Hebrew Bible changed when you were dealing with a cholera epidemic versus when you're living in a time where everybody was healthy. <laughs> And so that's what we do: is we'll we'll look at these texts and and try and help students see the different way people interpret them and live them out in really, you know, important ways to those people with the context of where they're at and what time they're at.
0: Do you have any, like, strategies for getting students through really challenging pieces of text? Like, for example, like, I do, like, a ton of, like, audio recording, and I'll uh-huh. often, like, play recordings as students are reading along in class. Like, do you have any strategies for getting through hard stuff?
1: Um, In terms of strategies of, of that is I do a lot of partner work. I do a lot of group work. But what I also do is we're encountering some of these older texts, and especially some of these older interpretations of text, both of those, mm-hmm. is that often reminding kids that we're not always going to resolve this, right? This is an ongoing conversation. And I feel that that strategy to begin allows them to access it, knowing that they're not supposed to be experts when they finish, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What I always say and what we should always make sure to say as educators in this religious studies field is that you'll never fully know the – or you'll never come to a, a fullness. You'll never come to a full understanding of it but you'll understand the complexity of it. Sure. I think that is is critical when we're dealing with some of these, these ancient texts. And and I make sure to not give them really more than a page, maybe a couple of pages, um, when it does come to primary sources, because we're looking to find critical aspects where people in those traditions are trying to live out those words, Um and so it is a, a pretty hyper-focus that we're looking for. Here's an example. Now let's look at all the internally diverse ways people have come to understand this, this text.
0: There's a translation of the Tao Jing that I really uh-huh. like, uh, and it's this one, actually, right here, um, okay. by Stanley Lombardo and Stephen Addis. And I emailed these guys when I was like trying to decide which Tao Jing translation to use in class. And yeah. I said to Stanley Lombardo, I said, What do you think that students should know going into reading this book? He's like, you have to read the Tao with a don't know mind. Uh You have to be able to be like, I don't know. And so I think about that a lot because that translated into a huge portion of my day. The amount of times that I say, I don't know, as an answer to a student question. I mean, I've said, I don't know way more times than I actually like know the answer. Do you know what I mean?
1: Oh, for sure. For so, sure. Like, and I think there is there is something beautiful, even the opening line of the DAO, right? Yeah. I mean, the DAO that could be named isn't it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you could sort of have that moment as well.
0: How do you uh, express to students like your own uncertainty or your own, um, you know, lack of total knowing whenever you're teaching this kind of stuff?
1: I think that's very apparent, you know, that, that I come out in the first day. And I tell people, when people ask me what my agenda is, and I say it a lot, my agenda is to become obsolete. You know, I teach 17 and 18 year olds and I, I feel that, you know, if they don't succeed, I've failed. And what I mean by succeed is if I have not given them the tools and the language with which to engage in this country, as well as, you know, if they're to venture outside of this country, I don't think I've done my, my job. Um, and so what I mean by that is, is helping them understand and learn to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, when it comes to to understanding each of the traditions, but knowing the entire time that I dedicate five plus hours every day to this and I'm still in a learned centered mode. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's it's critical in this field to be in that you realize that no matter what you're engaging with or who you're talking about or who you're learning about, you're still coming at it from your worldview. You're coming at it from your situated perspective and all the baggage and experiences that you've had. And so once we we help situate each student in their own place, I think there is a, a level of, of comfort, a level of, of I don't want to say being comfortable, but be, being able to sit in the class, not trying to be something that they're not.
0: Yeah. Not trying so, to be like, I need to know all the answers. Correct. correct. Just say, let's see where this goes. Yep. Um, so. You and I have had like somewhat different experiences with regards to like field trips and guest speakers. Uh-huh. So I kind of want to talk about these two topics. Sure. Um, so throughout the years, what has been your perspective on field trips, like going to synagogues or mosques or temples or something like that? How have you thought about this issue?
1: Sure. It's one of the most <laughs> pressing issues when it comes to this. Um, I've never taken any group of students on a school-sponsored field trip to a a religious site or a religious house of worship. Um, I never felt in in my role as a religious studies educator that it it was my job to do that. Um, I was very aware of, and I would say this, both out of respect, but also I would say out of risk management. Um, There's a big sign, and and Dr. Moore at, at the Religious Literacy Project says it all the time, is that our job should be to disrupt assumptions, you know, and I don't want to reinforce and I've never wanted to reinforce to my students that if I were to take them to say, for example, a Buddhist temple or a synagogue or a church, that there, that might be the singular experience that student has in that faith tradition and then think that that authentic view, which it would be, it would be an authentic expression of religion is exclusive to that religion. And I think that's that can be dangerous. I'm not saying it is dangerous. I'm saying in religious studies it can be dangerous if a singular experience of a religion is linked only to ritualistic practice, to mm-hmm. think that religion is only devotional in ritual in a space, um, rather than look, rather than looking at all the different complex ways that religion affects a person's life and affects our society. One of the ways
0: that we handle this, so the places that I've gone to, I've taken students to a Hindu temple, a huh. Jewish synagogue uh, that was sort of like a reform-slash-conservative congregation, and also the local mosque in Columbia, Missouri. And what I did is I made them optional, and we went on like a Saturday morning, and I sure. said, if you want to go... We will be here, and there will not be services going on. There will be no practice going on. It will merely be Q&A in the building Mm -hmm. that you can choose to come to or not. And all parents, friends, siblings, cousins, et cetera, are welcome (laughs) to join us. Um, Bring an open mind and good questions, and we'll have an amazing day. It's gone really well, too. But, yeah, I can. it's one of those things to where, in the back of my mind, I'm always waiting for something to get tense. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there oh, was absolutely. one gentleman one time was sitting in the circle at the Hindu temple, arms crossed, posture leaned back, scowl across the face. And I was just waiting for something to go wrong the whole time. So whenever you talk about risk management, that's something that I really latch on to as well because I've done it and I've been in those spaces with people and I'm just like waiting for something to go wrong the whole time.
1: Yeah. And I think religion is really, you know, the one aspect um, that I think we should just really think but different than a history field trip. It's different, you know, than a math or science field trip. Um, you know, we're talking about for those practitioners at those houses of worship, um, what is of utmost importance in many of their lives and on the extreme end of it being. Possibly, and the way you did it doesn't sound like this, but I know a lot of field trips, it, it can sometimes be a little voyeuristic if you're going into these houses of worship right. during worship services. Yeah. Um, in addition to students, again, having this assumption that religion is this way and this, in their mind, that what they experienced was real religion and anything that doesn't fit that, that idea that they had reinforced isn't as much religious or isn't as vital to the religion Um, and so that's, that's for my own approach to this is to give them the language, to give them the tools to engage with it, um, and to do everything I can to not reinforce, uh, certain assumptions.
0: Have you ever gone on any trips yourself, um, to like observe services in other, um, traditions?
1: I have, yes, as a, as a person who on my own individually wanting to learn, from and and see it and, and you know engage with it talk with people absolutely yeah um but that that comes from me as a student of religion and i'm coming at it from a personal you know interest and i'm using my own money and my own time and i feel as an adult that's how it should be done um and so for for me taking the students um and just being very aware that that many Might be coming, and I don't know this, but many might be coming with their own, you know, religious convictions. And at no point would I want my student to feel that in order to take my class, they might have to suspend or at the worst possibly break their own devotional, you know, life that they've lived up to that point. I want everyone to be able to come to my course to learn and study and engage, but at no point have to make a decision between what they're bringing and what they want to get out of the class.
0: Have any students ever come up to you and said, Oh, Mr. Camardola, I went and sat with like a Zen meditation group over the weekend and here's what we did. And oh my gosh, I would never have done that if it hadn't been for this class.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It happens all the time. And you know, living just outside Chicago, you know, kids all the time just hop on the train and it shoots them right into the city. Yeah. <laughs> so um, kids are down there all the time. And when you live in a, a metropolis like Chicagoland, you know, the obviously the access to religious houses of worship, it's not hard to get to just about, you know, every major religious tradition. So, yeah, students are are constantly dealing with this. And if it if it comes from their own interest, great, great. And if they bring that back to the class, wonderful. Um, I just think that my role as a religious studies teacher in a public school um, should really focus on helping them look at, like we said, all the ways that each religion is internally diverse, um, and at no point taking an authentic view of that religion and, and reinforcing that it can be seen as exclusive.
0: One of my uh, favorite books is by a mutual friend of ours, uh, Faith Ed, Linda, uh-huh. Linda, Linda, by Linda K. Worthheimer, who has been on this show. And in that book, she discusses like some of the impacts like, that are both good and bad of having guest speakers come to classrooms to talk about their religious practices and do like demonstrations and things like that for students and answer Q&A in the room during the school day. Have you ever dabbled with guest speakers over the years?
1: I have. I have. And what I've tried to do is, is to take the guest speakers who have come in and tried to find people that were not only practitioners, but were also scholars right, of yeah. the religion. Um, and so I, I did that on and off for most of my career up until about a year ago. Um, and once I, and it did, it changed with, um, learning more about Dr. Moore's scholarship, uh, into the cultural studies method, uh, and the implications that come when a public school teacher selects a single speaker. Um, if I were to do it again, so right now the way I I have the class structured is I no longer have guest speakers and I haven't for a year and I'm, I'm really giving it a run to see if I think it's the is the best way in my opinion to to run a religious studies course. Um, if I were to ever have guest speakers in the future, um, the way I think I would do it is I would have a panel of guest speakers, and I don't mean you know a rabbi, a priest, and a mom et cetera i would I would have multiple voices from the same religious tradition mm-hmm. to help reinforce that religions are culturally embedded and to really help the students see internal diversity. Um, but as of right now, we, we did last year, we did no guest speakers last year and with regards to a devotional aspect, um, and it, it worked out really well. And so I'm, I'm sort of in that in, in the ways religions are dynamic, my course is dynamic and I'm currently, um, in sort of the time of, of not doing speakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe if you and I talk in about a year, <laughs> yeah. and I'll let you know if, if I think it's sort of best practices.
0: That's a lot more time in front of the classroom on your shoulders as well. It is. It you is. Know? Um One of the things that I, I can talk about that panel thing. Um, so last year, I had a panel that was absolutely mind-blowing for me. I had a panel of three women who had gender, sexuality, and um Uh, racial diversity among the three of them and they came from three different traditions one was a Disciples of Christ minister one was a Southern Baptist minister and one was a Methodist minister so they had they were all um, pastors within Christianity but from three different denominations and they had a tremendous amount of life diversity just among the three of them. So students would ask a question and all three of them would answer it. And all three of the panelists were learning things left and right from their co-panelists. Uh, and they kept, um, they kept learning along with the students in real time. And it was rather astonishing to see. So that panel mm-hmm. thing from, of multiple voices from within the same tradition, I found that to be among my favorite day of class ever.
1: Sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about community engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've mentioned a little bit about parents in the past of saying to, saying things to you like, what is your agenda? I know that you have a parent literacy uh, course that you teach. So how have you tried to engage the adults in religious literacy in your own community?
1: It's a great question. Um, and this is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about is I've tried to figure out ways to not only engage with the students, but also with their parents. And for the first few years of teaching this course, I was receiving really genuine emails, uh, from parents asking what we were teaching, how we were teaching it. Uh, cause I just think that, that religion in public schools is so misunderstood. And going back about four years ago, I finally said to myself that there's got to be a better way <laughs> than and for my own time, my own sanity. But when I say this, like there has to be a better way of engaging our community at the local level. And so what I what I started doing first year, it was off site. Um, and now this will will be the third year that will be on site is I host a two hour course um, every third or fourth Thursday night. I reserve our our library and I I offer it for free and I just say any parents and now it's any adults in the community that are interested, um, please come out. We're going to go through some readings. We're going to go through some lecture. We're going to show you some short videos. We're going to discuss what your son or daughter will be discussing over the next three weeks. And so I pretty much give the parents an opportunity to not only learn what their child is learning, for many of them themselves. yeah, You know, I've had uh, medical professionals, I've had lawyers, I've had businessmen and women <laughs> who've come through the course and say, I just need some help, you know, I, I'm going to Singapore, or I deal with patients that, that need this, or right? I mean, you're, you can imagine all these different ways that religion plays out across society. And so what I've found is that it, it's a great way to engage the adults And what I think is it changes and improves the conversation at home with their kids. And it's something I believe in. It's something that I would say if anybody's looking to to improve the religious studies education at their school and also in their community, it's just such a fun way. Uh, And it's hard. I mean, because now you're dealing with adults, but it's uh, it's very worthwhile. And it's something I'm like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to do.
0: My friend uh, George Frizell, who founded the religious studies course in Columbia, Missouri, that I wound up teaching at a different school, he taught the class at a school in Columbia for like twenty plus years, and he's now since retired. But he was like my my mentor. He was my first guest I ever had on this show, and he does the exact same thing. He has a once a week um a once a week class open to the public. He advertises it. It's in the school's library. And he also brings in a guest each time um, for questions and things like that. And it's really remarkable. What's your turnout like for the parents for the parent programs? What's your turnout like?
1: Um, you know, last year was was sort of our high point. I I had one hundred and eight, one hundred and thirty eight students. Um, last year in my courses, across my five courses, and I had 110 of their parents sign up on the email list.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: And we had between, I'd say about, on the low end, about 40. Um, On the high end, we'd have some nights up close to 70. And uh, I understand that everybody's lives are busy, but it was, I was expecting five or 10. Yeah, (laughs) no, that's amazing. We've really sort of hit um, this moment now where people want to engage with their neighbors. They want to, you know, engage with, like we said, this multicultural and multi-religious society we live in and to do so hopefully in a, in a critical yet respectful way. And I would love to, to find more religious studies teachers and people in this field that are are looking for ways to, to improve upon this.
0: So, The biggest thing that I can find right now in this country that is advocating for religious literacy for all people is something that you've mentioned several times. It's the Harvard Religious Literacy Project. And um, the way I found you is that you were featured in the Harvard Gazette. There's been articles about you in the Daily Herald and the Chicago Tribune. How did you get connected with Harvard during your work and become such an integral part of the Religious Studies Project?
1: Yeah, the uh the way it all sort of went down is is about three years ago. Um I am also I teach in District 214, but I'm also an alum of 214. <laughs> um so I went to there are six high schools and I went to Hersey and uh a fellow alum who who went to Wheeling High School, his name was was Ben Marcus. And Ben asked me, Ben is a, a religious literacy specialist, and asked me to be a part of what, what would become known as the, the C3 framework. Uh, it's a a way that, that states can sort of gear their standards for teaching about social studies. And so what we needed and what we noticed, uh, Ben and I realized there wasn't really a way for people who are teaching about religion to have a, a framework, um, in the C3 document. And so, uh, I was asked to be part of that team. You know, we authored, the uh, Religious Studies Companion Document, and that's where I met uh, Dr. Diane Moore. She was on our team, and we sort of stayed in touch. And I attended a, a summer institute last July of 2017. And following that, um, I really sort of jumped on and, and told Dr. Moore that I wanted to, to make this pivot from a, just a soul traditions-based approach to the, the cultural studies model for, for teaching about religion and culture. And I joke, but like the rest is history.
0: So you just got back from the uh, another summer institute,
1: right? Yeah, it's the second one they've done.
0: So what did you do at this conference? What was your role now?
1: Yeah, so my role now, um, so myself and three colleagues um, who teach in Connecticut, who teach in Brooklyn, uh, and who teach at a, a community college, um, there were four of us and we started off on a panel talking about how the, the cultural studies model affects us in different ways. Because I think one of the greatest things that, that the religious literacy project does is it's not just looking to help people like us who are in a standalone world religion course,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which those are rare. I mean, yeah. we could be honest, those are rare in public schools. And so I was there talking about that from my perspective in a standalone course, Um, But we also had a, you know, someone there who's also an administrator and how it it affects their courses. We also had someone there who teaches, you know, traditional U.S. history and world history and, you know, a human rights course and how it affects that. And then we had someone who's a a sociology professor at a, a local community college. And so what we were trying to help, there were 25 new teachers that attended the Summer Institute from across America. We are trying to help people see that no matter what their station was, <laughs> community college, you know, we had a couple of people from Canada. Um, there was a handful of people with standalone courses, handful of people of elective courses, handful of people teaching traditional history courses, is that implementing religious literacy curriculum can elevate the conversation in the classroom. And it can really help students across the board, no matter what course they're in, learn to speak about and engage with with religion and culture in a very healthy way
0: so you are like riding high from this conference right now what got you pumped up last week at this conference
1: yeah that's a great question and it's I feel like going back um, really the last couple of years um, some of the different people that I've been able to be involved with um, is that this all centers on the fact is and I think all educators realize this you know, we're servants to this, you know, we're here to serve our students, you know, as, as much as I'd say, like that, this is about us. Like if our students and if our next generation, you know, isn't our, our focal point, uh, I think we're doing this wrong. And what I, what got me so excited this last week, but going back last year and and even before that is, is we're trying to equip these students, you know, to make them confident, but also to, to really help them engage and become an informed citizen in this democracy. And I, I feel that this cultural studies method and this learner-centered environment um, where students can come at it with critical inquiry, <laughs> that we're really onto something and that I feel that this best serves the needs of these students.
0: I found the Religious Literacy Project because of their massive open online courses, a.k.a. Yeah. MOOCs. The MOOCs. Are, yeah, they're free, <laughs> yeah, they're open to the public, yeah. um, so you can basically take free classes through Harvard, and yeah. anybody can do it. Have you ever done any of these courses?
1: Yeah, multiple. I'm nice. i tried to do almost all of them. I think I'm seven or eight in. <laughs> Did you do
0: the uh, certificates and everything?
1: So, well, there's two things. So I've never done the certificates with the MOOCs. Um, but what I am doing right now is I'm in the middle of completing a certificate program through the Harvard Extension School. Oh, cool. Which is also <clears throat> partnered with the Harvard Divinity School. So I'm I'm two of five classes into earning my Religious Studies and Education Certificate. Oh. Um, which will give me 20 hours of graduate level work in religious studies.
0: Is it all and online?
1: It's Yeah, it's both online. It can be in person, but you can do it online. and. You know, you're you're live. So it's you do have to show up. You know, you're virtually in class. Uh, And I found it very, very rewarding. And for any religious studies teachers out there that are looking to really improve their craft, um, the religious or the religious studies and education certificate through the extension school is outstanding. Um, And I would say it's sort of a step up above the, the MOOCs, even though the MOOCs are I would highly recommend those as well. Um the certificate program I think is, is really geared towards educators.
0: I may have to consider doing that myself because that sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: Um how have you changed as a person after being exposed to so many world religions over the last several years? Like what have been your biggest takeaways about being alive on this
1: planet? <laughs> That's a massive question. I know, I'm sorry, uh, man. Yeah, it's great. I it's it's not my own line. I've heard it said in numerous ways. Uh, it's probably the thing I've connected with the most is I, I still am very comfortable and proud of how I was raised and and who I am. But what this work has done for me, um, some of my travels and, and some of my work uh, with academics and scholars has, has simply allowed me to not look at other people as, as failed attempts at being me. Mm. And again, it's not my line, but it's, it's sort of the, this energy of, of what I feel now is that it, it does nothing to make me feel less about who I am or how I was raised or, you know, different beliefs that I've had, you know, in my history and that I currently have. But it, it just allows me to honor people for their own situated perspectives and just really realize that's all we've got <laughs> is that, you know, between me and you and anybody listening to this is that all we have you know, in common is, is that we're on this planet in this time and place. But with regard to everything we bring to these conversations, you know, we're, we're so informed by our experiences and our upbringing and, you know, all the different ways that we've engaged with people and with cultures and with religions, that there's no singular way to say that, that we understand each other other than we can say, you know, I'm listening. (laughs) And that's, that's what I think uh, I've changed. That's how I've changed the most.
0: Say that there's a casual listener out there who wants to know more about religion uh, doesn't really want to take any classes, but maybe they want a couple of book recommendations. What would you recommend for people in the world who want to know a little bit more about religion?
1: Ooh, there are so many out there it's uh the sort of the broad ones you know dr moore's book you know overcoming um you know illiteracy religious illiteracy i think is is fascinating when it comes to this space um, I've always loved. Um, some of the more guiding books that I've found. And, and I read across cultures and I read across places, you know, I, I just finished a course. I, I love the ones um, dealing with how the United States has engaged with, you know, protecting people's rights. I'm called this and how the United States continues to deal with, you know, religious freedom um, Winifred Sullivan wrote a book called the impossibility of religious freedom, uh, of whether or not we can actually get to this, this point. <laughs> um, Tisa Wenger wrote a book simply called religious freedom, um, that I think all these books touch on multiple religions, but it, I always like coming at it from a sense of here in the United States where we proclaim you know, the, the inherent natural right of religious freedom. I like, and I think the casual listener would like thinking about ways in this country, how this American experiment, you know, this American experience differs for different people based on what you're coming to the table with. Uh, and I've I've often found that. And for me, you know, I've always really appreciated the, the history of, of Roger Williams. You know, Edmund Morgan wrote a book about Roger Williams that I think, for anybody who's who's looking at the initial part of this country and how people wrestled with the implications of, of religious freedom and sectarianism and, you know, the separation of church and state versus, you know, religion in England. Um, anything regarding uh, Roger Williams, I think, is a, is also a fascinating read.
0: What are some of your goals for the future of your courses?
1: I think the next major goal, well, you know, this year, based on uh, my ability to complete this uh certificate through the Harvard extension school is my course will now be uh, dual credit. So it will be uh, accredited by Eastern Illinois university. And so any student that takes both semesters will have the opportunity to earn uh, an intro to religious studies course before they graduate high school. Um, so it's different than AP because you don't have to take a test at the end. Oh, that you is fantastic. I mean? It is. So we're sort of, and that, that's sort of the hope. I mean, and that's, that's where I'm interested. And in. I'm, I'm beyond humble to realize that I am by no means a Ph.D. scholar, but I'm very confident in the guidance I've been receiving with the curriculum, um, how we've built it out and really how we've tried to model it, both in its authenticity because of who I am and how I teach it, but also in, you know, the to make sure that it's academically rigorous enough to m- at least meet the standards of an intro to religion course freshman year in college. And so I think that by offering this opportunity to the students and, and making sure people understand what's at stake, I think that's sort of the next. I want to continue to build out um, the parent class. The, you know, we're, for the first time this year, we're hosting the class online, meaning like we're going to meet in person, but our conversations are going to continue while we're not together. So we're, we're going to create an online platform um, where I can throw some extra readings out. Parents can um, communicate with one another. As we really try and build that out. But I think this dual credit course uh, with the support of of District 214 and as well as Eastern Illinois and with the religious literacy project with the curriculum, I think uh, that's sort of how we're moving. And I want to make sure that teachers out there, you know, I'm speaking directly to teachers and educators now that that you can do this, that we can do this, um, that it's vital for our next generation. Uh, that we're not endorsing anything other than <laughs> knowledge, <laughs> information, tools, um, the language to be able to engage. And I hope the conversation continues.
0: Well, John, this has been a fantastic hour for me. I know that you are starting school in just a couple days, and I want to wish you all the best for the upcoming 2018-2019 school year at Mount Prospect High School, and good luck to your basketball team as well.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it.
0: And uh, I'm just so grateful to you for your time today.
1: No, and I, I think what you're doing is great, and I hope this is the beginning of more conversations. Um as we, we all try and figure out in this country how to, to communicate respectfully and, and work together. And I'll, uh, I'll look forward to following more of the Classical Ideas podcasts in the future.
0: Thank you, John. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.